Hello, welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production uh, to release all the way to reception. What do we have today, Chris? Well, uh, it's my pick today. Uh, I think you were kind of the ringleader of the Pineapple Express uh, pick. We are on an old movie week where we've been kind of alternating back and forth between looking at what's new on VOD versus what is uh, new again on an available streaming service. So we are looking at the releases for Netflix uh, in August. And one title in particular stood out to me. It's 2010's. Alan Coulter directed, Academy Award nominated, <laughs> Will Fetters written, Remember Me, uh, starring Robert Pattinson, Emily DeRaven, and Chris Cooper, Pre- Pierce Brosnan. There's a lot of people in this, and it's it took a lot of people to make uh, perhaps, uh, I'd go so far as to say, one of the five worst movies of the decade. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is an appropriate tagline. Uh, especially considering the cast involved. I mean, that is pretty mm-hmm. stacked. You got Pattinson right after Twilight, before he makes his dive into Art House. You have Pierce Brosnan, I think, at kind of the height of his game, right? I feel uh, like like back 2010, he was really, I mean, not like fame, but like acting. You know, because like, yeah. like post um, James Bond, I think he's been a much better actor. I mean, that's just me. Uh, and Chris Cooper's <laughs> always amazing. Uh, yes. Emily Raven, I don't. She's still around, right? She's still semi-famous. She's in TV a lot. Yeah, I, I mean, she's most famous for Lost, but uh, I don't know. I it, it's. I think the most interesting thing is like the those three names. You they're either British or Australian, and it's a supposedly a quintessential New York story. Um, but yeah, it's uh let's 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 talk about it, shall we? This was released back in March of 2010, and. Uh, is available on Netflix this month. I believe it was on Netflix for a while, um, a few years ago. I remember seeing it on there, and I remember uh, a particular meme circulating. That's when I saw it, uh, because I, w- I could not believe my eyes what the meme was. I should say, <laughs> at this point, if you have not seen the film and you enjoy you know, bad movies, especially bad romance movies, especially bad romance movies that think they have something very big to say um then i would definitely recommend checking this out it's it's quite fun in my opinion i think dan you might think differently uh, yeah it's it's an interesting ride you don't mm-hmm. expect it's what's going to happen at the end yeah and it's all about the ending it's going to come up over and over again throughout the notes that we talk about how this was conceived how it was produced uh how it was received on release um the ending is just it's very out of the blue so if you have not seen the movie don't listen to this podcast or listen to this podcast then go watch it i don't care it's your life uh but the (laughs) ending really changes the entire movie i think is the simplest way to put it um in terms of the actual plot let's walk through that tyler robin pattinson uh has a strained relationship with his father pierce brosnan since a family tragedy uh rebellious and troubled he thinks no one can understand his pain then he meets Allie, uh, emily de raven her warmth and spirit soon begin to heal him and they fall in love yay uh but just when tyler begins to rediscover rediscover happiness and meaning in his life uh, emerging secrets threaten their romance i mean that's a very uh dime store novel romance plot isn't it (laughs) Uh, And it's also much more secretive and kind of mysterious than it actually is. Mm -hmm. The secret that come out. I mean, it's just I don't know. There's a lot going on there. Uh, But before we get to that, let's talk about who made this thing. Who made this thing? Right. So it 
it essentially came from the brain of Will Fetters, who was a 22-year-old uh, screenwriter uh, trying to make his break. And this script, he somehow got uh, floated around Hollywood and it caught the eye of director Alan Coulter. Where Fetters came up with this concept, I feel, is where we have to talk about the ending. So yes. it's it's a generic romance, as Dan kind of outlined the plot. Um there's a lot of other things going on in it, but essentially it seems like Fetters had this concept of wanting to make a movie about a quote-unquote average person that died during the tragedy of 9-11. So <laughs> it's, it, it just, hearing, hearing it come out of my own mouth makes it feel so absurd, more absurd than perhaps it even is no, no, it's pretty it's pretty apt, I think. But see, <laughs> I don't know though. I, I kind of disagree. I kind of disagree. I would say that like the concept of what he started out with, he started out with the ending. He started yes. out with the main character dying in the Twin Towers attack on 9/11. That's the start of this and the end of this movie essentially. The start of the story and the end of the movie. Um that to me kind of sounds semi-interesting. Uh, it kind of like, you know, the day in the life of someone who dies uh, in that tragic event, that would be fascinating. Uh, what was the um, movie about the guy who was shot in Oakland uh, and who was his last day of life? Fruitvale, <sighs> Fruitvale Station. That's yes. a really good parallel of uh, an example of that concept Done. being executed. Great. Well, yeah, exactly. And so like, so the concept in of itself, uh, you know, from the start, I don't think it's necessarily the worst idea in the world, but the execution here is absolutely awful on every level. It is definitely one of the worst movies I've seen uh, in a very long time. Um, but where else, where else did this movie come from? Like how did he sort of um, come up with the idea? Yeah. So, I mean, see, there's a lot of uh, elements that it seemed went into this after the concept, right? He started reading about uh, real people's lives that, um, were, who were victims in uh, 9-11 and uh, ultimately he had his own while he was going to law school um, mis misunderstanding with Delaware law enforcement and that's one of the key kind of uh, I don't know entanglements of the characters is that uh, his character Tyler as well as his friend Aiden get involved in trying to like break up this random fight that happens in a crosswalk next to a bar that they're at uh, and the cop that comes in to arrest uh people for i don't know what exactly just like general violence on the streets but uh, he is a cop with a chip on his shoulder played by chris cooper trying to do everything he can um to uh put some meaning into this role and ultimately that's where then Allie comes in because Allie is the cop's daughter and so this whole really convoluted it's, it's terrible it's such a really bad premise even taking away the 9-11 stuff just for a romance of uh his his friend suggesting to tyler played by robert pattinson to uh try to hook up and then dump the daughter of this cop that uh, I mean, messed up their lives that night that's disgusting I mean, I thought that I thought that whole subplot was just awful. Like, why would you do that to a person? No. And my, my, uh, favorite, my favorite part of that is that uh, it, we're supposed to generally think that Aiden, the friend, is an asshole, but not necessarily Tyler. Like he's brooding and he's he's complicated in quote marks. Yeah. Um, but uh, 
ultimately when Aiden like comes up with this idea, he doesn't even have to do much convincing. Tyler's just like, oh, fuck it. Okay. And then he goes, <laughs> he goes and tries to get involved with Allie, played by Emily uh, uh, Yeah, the, the start of this movie, there's two things that popped up immediately. One, in doing sort of this research, we found a couple of pieces of information. One is that Pattinson said that he was the one who got into a fight. Right. Right? In Alphabet City, which I used to live in. Uh, <laughs> and he uh, apparently got into a fight with someone. Exactly that situation. Someone hit someone's car with a baseball bat or something. Whatever. It doesn't matter. So he says that, but then what the hell is Fetters talking about? A misunderstanding with Delaware law enforcement. I, I, like, I want I want to know more about like, what did you do to a cop that the, he then like took revenge on you? Like, yeah, especially in, in Delaware. I don't know. <laughs> no sales um, tax, though. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it I, yeah, it's either competing information or like Fetters had some real like it's i mean he was starting out like 22 he probably he had a lot of weird ideas didn't for this movie and so maybe uh what what he originally had in the script that was inspired by his own life wasn't good enough because then it seemed like it was like the day after the thing happened to pattinson and then pattinson's like why don't we why don't we do this idea and i am sure whenever pattinson had an idea on the set of this movie which uh, we'll get into more later, but I mean, he he's in the midst of his incredible rise to stardom that it probably didn't take much for the producers and the director to be like, yeah, let's go with Rob's idea <laughs> compared <laughs> he's to got clout. He was yeah. in Twilight. Exactly. Well, it's fascinating. The one of the more fascinating things about sort of looking into how this movie was made uh, was the fact that they didn't know who Robert Pattinson was when no. they cast him. I know. Right. This was so like th- two years just- prior to the big explosion of fame. And I was trying to think about, so what, Twilight came out, what, 2008? And, like, it mm-hmm. wasn't, I don't know, I remember, like, I invested a lot of money in Twilight on Howard Stock Exchange because my sister told me to because <laughs> she read the book and she's like, dude, this is going to be huge. You should invest in it. And it was, like, a dime stock. And I made, like, so much money. I'm, like, super rich because of Twilight. Um, I mean, fake money, of course. Um, <laughs> and uh, so this was, like, what? So this got released two years later, but they must have filmed it, I think, in 2009, it must have been. Right. Um and so, so right afterwards, but when they're casting it, right, he, the producer, what did the producer say? He looked at IMD Pro. He typed in male stars 18 to 27 <laughs> and Robert Pattinson came up as number two. There's two things that come out of that. One that IMDb, I forget, is used by actual people in the industry all the time to look right. for people. And the fact that he came up as number two is kind of shocking to me. There wasn't other people in 18 to 27, uh, that age bracket that would be, you know, perfect for this role. Right. Uh, but that's the producer, Nick Osborne. He said that in the LA Times, basically the interview he did. Um, and so, you know, they, I think, it was kind of serendipitous that they came across him. They called Summit uh, and Summit's obviously the company sort of put this out and put out Twilight. Uh, and they said they liked him a lot. They used him in Twilight and said, hey, we're going to go with him. And it turned out, I think, you know, the the casting of, of Pattinson, the movie's terrible. Let's just start out with that. Um, I don't think there's any other way that we can, we can sort of like um, sort of view the film uh, objectively. It's not a good movie, but no. Pattinson makes it kind of enjoyable. Yeah. Right. He brings his, I guess, chops and his just willingness to sort of go for it here and ham it up on some level as a younger actor. And I think that he he was like he was the best you could possibly do with this part. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, probably. I mean, it does. Uh, it, it's it's funny because, like, I don't necessarily think he's doing his best. He <laughs> he definitely it definitely feels like. I mean, one of the things uh, we read about is that 
you know, during the time of Twilight and all of a sudden then he's getting scripts thrown at him, he would go to a In-N-Out Burger parking lot and like yeah. read scripts in the back totally. seat. Yeah. And, and I can just imagine like being like, I don't know, what is he like 25 at this point or something? Yeah, it's gotta be something like that. Yeah. And, and he's, and he's just like on the cusp of this insane stardom and he's just like looking through these scripts and he's probably maybe he's high. I don't know. He's in the back seat <laughs> in the parking lot. And and he comes across this script with this incredibly awful twist ending, but could, you know, potentially I, I guess I could see a version of my twenty something year old self being like, Oh wow, this is this is different and then you just like <laughs> throw yourself into it. But he's not like really throwing himself into it where he's like committing fully. It's like because the script is like the dialogue is so hard to sell, but he he knows that part of what makes him appealing as an actor is that he will do the weirdest things, right? Like that that yeah. has followed him through with like Good Time and The Lighthouse. And so, yeah, it's just you keep wanting to watch it because he makes like little strange movements and ticks and line deliveries. Yeah, exactly. He sort of he brings something pretty special, I think, to the character into the entire movie and kind of it gives it an almost sort of fun bad watch vibe to it yeah uh, because he does i don't know it's something he's doing is pretty um pretty his own style and his own sort of um way of 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 creating this character on screen i think like before we move on to like how this thing was actually shot and stuff i think there's there's one thing i wanted to call it this uh, the original title is actually called memoirs <laughs> and i think that, that it's important to to um, understand that like this movie is super personal to fetters and he yeah. says that kind of multiple times and I, i'll draw a parallel to i think weatherman the weatherman oh, i right. think that like sometimes when writers um think about their lives and try to kind of barf what they felt in their own life on screen we get stuff like this yep. right and I, I go back to what aaron sorkin says in his master class which i've seen of course uh <laughs> is that characters aren't real people they're not real people Characters exist only on the screen and only on the page, and they exist only to deliver the story. Now, you may not agree with that, but I think there's some truth into that. But when you try to make a character an extension of you or like a real person uh, that would exist off the page, it doesn't necessarily work and it gets very messy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of what, to me, what one of the major reasons why this film, I think, is a, is a pretty substantial failure. Um, what about shooting this thing? This had yeah. to be a nightmare, man. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like, so it's interesting that Alan Coulter is the guy that ends up directing this, right? Yeah. He, um, up in that, up until that point, um, had, uh, what, what did he make? Oh shoot. I had it up here. And I Hollywood land. Yes. Yeah, Hollywood. Yeah, that's you. the only thing he's and that's it. He's like a big TV guy. Big TV yes. Guy. Big TV guy. X-Files, Millennium, Sex in the City. And then even like some of the best episodes of The Sopranos. Like he's responsible for the college episode, which is arguably oh, like in the top three most famous Sopranos episodes. Um, so like he. But here's the thing is like this is a guy that clearly found his niche because then he went on to direct episodes of Boardwalk Empire, House of Cards, Vinyl. But we can forgive him for that. And then he uh -huh. ends up. Um, like seemingly having, I mean, this is what some directors do, right? They realize that they need somebody to boss them around to tell them a house style. And without that in tow, it seems like he's letting, um, his cinematographer, Jonathan Freeman do a lot of the heavy lifting here, right? Like there, there is no really strong, like mise-en-scene sense of place or anything here. And so he is clearly in over his head. 
And I mean, there's so much, so many other things going on from the production end. It's also produced by Trevor Engelson, who at the time was married to Meghan Markle, who has like yeah, a yeah. really small scene as a bartender. Which I totally missed when I Which saw is that. Totally super missed. random. Um, but also that guy Engelson directed another one of the worst movies of the new millennium, All About Steve, um, in 2009. Ugh. As well as License to Wed with John Krasinski and Rod Williams. Like, this Yikes. is just, it's, you got a whole mess of people just like dipping their fingers in this thing. So, the whole process, plus with the whole like Pattinson shooting to fame thing, it's just got to be a mess. Um, and they even say that in uh, um, one of the uh, pieces from LA Times about uh, like physically trying to do like a lot of on location shooting in New York because so much of this movie is like shot out on the streets, right? And so his Pattinson's fame just like completely ruined uh, their ability to really probably like mark off and do blocking and stuff like that. So a lot of it feels like claustrophobic and like way too many like medium shots, like the Chris Columbus effect, I like to call it. But it's it's just it's just yeah, it's I mean, did you feel could you feel that while you're watching that where it just seemed like this? It seems like like the old Simpsons joke. There were there were script problems from day one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it had, it does not have a lick, a look or feel to it that uh, I would say cinematic. No, uh, it just doesn't feel that way. It almost feels like a TV show. Like it is very close up. Um, and I think that like, you know, knowing, you know, so I lived sort of when I lived in New York, you would see stuff shooting all the time. Like mm-hmm. it was just normally go to lunch. They're shooting a movie. They're just like, it's like whatever. It's very hard. And I would be one of those um, assholes who the I don't know who the person is who they're supposed to, like, not let somebody walk through the set. Um, I don't know what that, they're called, like a PA, probably. Yeah. But I would constantly I get so pissed because they're always filming <laughs> and I would just walk right through it. Like, I don't give a shit. It's a freaking sidewalk. So if I'm like that, I can't even imagine oh, yeah, what it would no. be like to have Robert Pattinson there. And like a thousand screaming fans, they said that he had to have 14 guards to go to the bathroom. Like, I mean, this is a total nightmare. And I think the total hotels shoot, like six times. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it's already super hard to film in New York because of jerks like me. Uh, and now with all this sort of uh, the fans and stuff, I, I don't know how they did it. And I think you can, like you said, you can really see the final results on the screen are just not there. Uh, and I think they had to rush through it. Uh, and they, basically they said it was a total relief when they got to the, the <laughs> uh, stage the last two weeks. I can't really figure out the timing of the shoot, though, because I think it said that they shot it over like 19 days. I assume they're shooting money through Friday. So maybe like a month shoot. Yeah. So two weeks uh, on location and two weeks on the stage. Yep. Um, I guess that's how it worked. The interior scenes are fine. <laughs> I'm gonna say, like, I mean, those right. are well shot. They, yeah, they, they, they seem comfortable and. I mean, it's still weird, like so many like random little pieces that uh, feel just make you feel awkward, like them throwing spaghetti water at each other and stuff like that. But yeah, what was that? That whole and his I will also say this, like his relationship. This is probably not to do with production, but I don't care. Uh, His relationship (laughs) with his friend is just so bizarre. It's so bizarre. It's just bizarre. Who acts like that with their friend? Like and he's like living. It's his roommate and like. He, I don't know. He's auditing classes at NYU with him. And it's just <laughs> Did, no one does that. No one does that. Like, you no. don't have time to do that. You got to like work and stuff. I know. Uh, oh, yeah. He also. Yeah. He somehow works at the classes Strand which and is also a great works at bookstore. Strand. Yeah. Great bookstore. Well, 
I thought we we would come back like we're there twice, right? But also, yeah, yeah. it's still like those very like close mediums. Like the whole point of going to Strand to shoot is to see like the millions of books and high ceilings and everything. And oh, just a yeah. Waste. And I would say this too. The only thing I would say about the production design is that his apartment. I lived in an old tenement yes. building that was gross. They actually got that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, this sort of this makes sense. It was a little bit affected. Um, like mm-hmm. they almost like they put grime on the walls, like right. <laughs> to pretend like someone had smoked there for 40 years. <laughs> um, and I get, but I get that. And I think that they had a decent job with sort of, you know, that sort of vibe, early twenties or whatever, uh, living in New York city. Uh, anything about, uh, else about this production? Oh, funny story. When they shot on the beach, I thought this was oh, hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a member of the paparazzi, uh, spent hours kind of swimming around in the ocean with this camera above his head just to get a shot of when they're on the beach together, which I don't even remember mm. that scene. Do you remember? No. Oh, I do remember the scene. It's now. very yeah, brief. Yeah, yeah but yeah. It, uh, that's just so pathetic. I but it, honestly, it just it, I think overall it sounded like a very tough... It, they started out with not a great concept. Yeah. The script was basically dog shit, let's be honest. And Was it on Blacklist, though? Um, I, I, did I read that somewhere? Okay, maybe I was wrong. Maybe that's not true. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, so terrible script, uh, basically an impossible shoot with a super famous guy. Uh, it's no wonder that the final product here is a little bit messy. What did yeah. uh, what did people think about this when this thing got released on March twelfth, two thousand ten? Um, Rotten Tomatoes all critics percentage of twenty seven, which is uh, oh man, and that's, top critics twenty six. Like I I so rarely see anything below yeah. forty, much less thirty. And this is it, sometimes you'll see stuff skewed because it's like 30 reviews, but this is like 100 reviews like this is not <laughs> skewed at all. This is like a legitimate barometer of what critics <laughs> thought and anything below 50 is catastrophically bad. Yeah. So that's uh that that I mean, that sums it up to to say the least. But like um, Letterboxd uh, where the movie nerds are and the Rotten Tomatoes audience, it's better. It's in the 60s, 69 for Rotten Tomato audience. Yeah. Also before validating, you know official uh ticket stubs or whatever um yeah. letterboxd i i do think there's probably a good amount of inflation from uh so bad it's good um ratings oh, letterbox yeah letterbox score surprises me because it's yeah. at because like a 60 on letterbox is actually kind of pretty good in 80s like the high watermark of a masterpiece yes. yes and so i think that you're right i think a lot of probably younger people maybe right. not zoomers but younger millennials love irony love this film in that sense <laughs> yep yep um imdb where you get a lot more of the normies uh 71 <laughs> out of 100 i mean uh, i don't know I'm, I'm curious to hear more what you thought about like you know the the first couple acts i mean aside from just like the weird uh co- convoluted conflict behind the quote-unquote secrets of their relationship but just like as a gen like did you think that they had chemistry were you invested in their relationship I was, I was, and I, but keep in mind, cause the one thing I love romance films, so right, I'm a sucker right. for rom-coms and just general romance films. Um, just show me two people falling in love and I will be happy. Um, and, uh, yeah, I felt, I felt like there was something there, like clearly the setup doesn't make any sense at all. That doesn't happen. And it, uh, it, it would never happen to a character. So it's just dumb. Uh, but besides that, them falling in love, them sort of connecting, I thought it was pretty good. And I was somewhat invested. I wanted to know more about his brother and like his relationship with his brother and, yeah. and, and yeah. his father. Like to me, the meat of this story is um, Tyler, his brother, Michael and his father that and like the whole but, cop thing and Allie. Yeah. Uh, 
Like, I don't really need it. And there's like the little sit. There's a precocious little sister in it, too. Oh, I totally forgot she was in this. Well, that's what gives us the reveal is the precocious little sister. We see her uh, at the uh, school desk and the teacher walks slowly across the classroom and you see on the chalkboard September 11th, 2001. Uh, and yeah. it's Yikes. but there's I mean the the speaking of the brother and just like the family dynamics and everything like there's so much like stuffed into this but it it like I felt like I was watching an episode of The Wire where like I didn't it took me until like minute 40 or so to really understand what the family structure was of like the brother because oh, it, it makes no sense it doesn't, it doesn't make, yeah it did like there's no it, they throw you right. in the deep end and just expect you to know what's going on his parents are divorced he has a stepdad but he also calls his real dad by his first name and so it's oh, just, <laughs> like that first scene where it's like his birthday or something oh i know i was like who are all of you people <laughs> pierce brosnan asks them to pass the salt and apparently that's a, <laughs> Or the sugar or I love Pierce Brosnan. He used to mean everything. Oh, he's great. Oh um, how does this thing do? Okay, so it opened on March uh, 12, 2010. Did 8 million opening weekend, uh, which is not great. It opened fifth behind mm. Alice in Wonderland, Green Zone, She's Out of My League, remember that movie, uh, and Shutter Island. Uh, it dropped to 10th place in week two, down 60%, which is terrible for a romance movie. You want to drop it like 40% tops in your second yeah. week. Uh, 12th place uh, in week three, uh, oh, 12th place in week three, yeah, down 40%. Um, so I think the Robert Pattinson people showed up opening weekend and nobody else wanted to see this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it was shot for $16 million, which is not a ton, but some it's not was not a big budget movie right. studio right. back then. So it's kind of a lot of money for them. Uh, total well, worldwide box office was 56. Uh, if I do math in my head, uh, they probably took home uh, about 25 million total in revenue from just the theaters and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably marketed it for, oh God, 20 million. Uh, so they didn't make money until it went to home video and then maybe they broke even, but I kind of don't think that they, maybe a little bit of profit, not much. Yeah. Definitely kind of a pushed uh, territory to loss, I would say. Yeah. Um, but still better so, than you'd think for such an awful yeah. movie. Well, you know, his fan base is so massive. And I think that also helped a lot of DVD sales. Sure. Um, they just want to see him and like, I don't know, they're just obsessed with him. So they want to see him on screen. Um, but yeah, I think it, it, I think their expectation was that, oh, it's Robert Pattinson. Uh, he's the Twilight guy. We're going to make like a hundred million dollars on this thing. And it just, mm-hmm. that, that never happened because obviously the story is terrible. Um, and it, it's, it's just confusing because like, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like a more, um, recent example of a teen heartthrob but like you you'd think they'd be more careful picking a script and a director i mean well, from the from the director of the dramatization of the george reeves saga to the teen heartthrob story it's like i don't know what what they're thinking i think you know someone uh, I, I was on the screenwriting subreddit once and someone told this story uh about how um someone um picked a book to sort of adapt to a screenplay. They picked a screenwriter. Um, the screenwriter wrote the screenplay and they went back and forth on it on, on drafts multiple times, like five or six times. And they finally kind of parted ways and said, hey, this isn't really what we want. We're bringing someone else in. This new guy comes in, reads the script and then reads the book and realize, realizes that the script has nothing to do with the book. <laughs> so they'd spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to make an adaptation uh, of a, a script that had nothing to do with the book they were adapting. Amazing. So that's the type of industry that this is. Yeah. Right. So I, my guess is that people read the script and like 
you read a thousand of them and this one stood out. It had that sort of edge. Oh, this is kind of crazy. You know, and I think that's probably what it <laughs> got through. Only because of the last page, two Correct. pages of the script. Yeah. Yeah. And but he remember he wrote the entire story around this. So it's like mm-hmm. as much as we want to say that it was tacked on, it wasn't tacked on. Like to him, this was like the foundation of oh, yeah. the entire in in, in that same interview where he's kind of decrying what all the critics are saying, he, he meant he says, like, you know, I I think we left enough breadcrumbs along the way. And like, that's as far as like twist endings and mystery, like that's the key thing. But like there, there are none. The only there's none. There's not a single one. There's, there's a thing where like the, the roommate says at, when they're at strand, like you've been acting like a ghost these past couple weeks. And that's supposed to be like a a setup for like, Oh, he's actually dead or something, which, which uh, was he dead? Did I miss the whole plot? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, 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 I challenged, um, our pad- podcasting friends, uh, Mark and Bridget, they host the uh, Screen Time um, podcast and they, they watched it last night. And that was definitely their guess because like they, they knew that if I was making them watch it, that there'd be some kind of payoff. And so like they kept thinking that like, OK, Robert Pattinson's dead. Um, and that's that those are the breadcrumbs. But like it's not like there's a big difference between Ghost and dying in 9-11, <laughs> you know, upon his moment of redemption or whatever. But there is no, I just, there's no redemption. There's nothing. Well, I don't, yeah, whatever. There, there, yeah, that's a whole other thing. Oh, God. <laughs> it's, it's so man, are we crazy though? What do the critics think about this? Oh, yeah. So this? we, we had to, we had to do some, uh, some real looking to find some positive quotes, <laughs> didn't we? Um, <laughs> oh, Robbie Collins, <laughs> News of World now at the BBC, uh, a teen pleasing low key indie romance with one of the most demented final twists ever. <laughs> I picked this one because I like Robbie Collins. He, he's a big BBC guy now. Yeah, uh, yeah. He like fills in for Mark Kermode all, all the time. Uh, and he's just one of those guys who like he will like something because it's crazy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the only reason why I wrote a positive review. What did Ebert have to say about this? Uh, thing? Ebert. I mean, he sometimes. OK, so and uh, Fetters actually like alludes specifically to Ebert's language here in his uh, coming soon.net interview where he's clearly struggling with depression. He said, Ebert said, the fact is, remember me is a well-made movie. I cared about the characters. I felt for them, liberate them from the plot's destiny, which is an anvil around their necks. And you might have something. So it, that seemed to really hit in a, the worst way possible to fetters, but he's fine. Now he got nominated for adapting a star is born for the fifth time. Uh, all is I think he's he's found his place in the industry, but for better or worse, he also adapted a couple Sparks novels. Yeah, he's yeah. I mean, how do you how do you fix this movie? Can you fix it? I I really don't see how. I I if I think Ebert Ebert hints at it. I think if you if you went in, okay, you can't fix it after the script. Let's let's agree to that. <laughs> yes, the, the script would have to be gutted. But I think if you took the story of Tyler, Michael, and his father, and made it really kind of like tense, uh, familial drama. Um, I think it would work. I would see that. That seems arty. That seems interesting. That seems deep. Throw out 9-11, throw out the love interest. That's how I do it. <laughs> but I feel like even that movie's made a thousand times. Like, just like getting over the the suicide of a family member, like what else is there? there- but but the, the, I think the the fatal flaw of this film is to think that that's not enough. Right. True. He always keeps adding more and more hot yeah. sauce to this thing. And you're going <laughs> to have diary at the end of the night. Like it's going to be bad. <laughs> There's a DVD quote. I like that. Pull quote. 
Um, the negative reviews, yeah, are 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 just as vicious as that. Um, A.O. Scott from At The Movies, now at New York Times, obviously, said, if this movie is playing at a theater near you, you might want to re- consider moving somewhere else. <laughs> That's, That's so just, brutal. So it's a great pithy one-liner. Um, Peter Travers of Rolling Stone says, it's all weepy drool until the twist, twist ending, which turns it shockingly offensive. And this is the one of the sticking points, I think, for Fetters, is that that's what hit him so poorly about how scathing the the critics were is that he was trying earnestly to like do a a, a proper tribute to the victims of 9-11 right yeah. and uh. it's just like backfired in the most oppositional way possible uh, yeah. Scott Tobias kind of adds on saying when the f- film finally goes for broke with that ambitious colossally misconceived finale a tremendous emotional investment in these characters is necessary to pull it off and even then its prospects would be questionable so I think he's hinting at kind of the opposite here is that like if you really wanted to make this a movie about you know one of the victims of 9-11 you you had to really have a lot of emotional investment and I don't know if it's there because Robert Pattinson's character is so like it's just he's just so just like uh what's the word I'm looking for like there's so little to him like any kind of convictions he has like his love for poetry which is kind of randomly mentioned three or four times and then disappears and disappears like there's nothing that's the thing about these characters there's so much like baggage on them and yet they don't really have personalities yeah I think that like yeah, I think I think he also kind of hints that like um, there's a tonal jar like the tones all over the place. Number one, mm-hmm. like it starts out as like it, it does kind of feel like a rom com on some level almost, especially with like it's, the Adam Brody style roommate. Yeah, yeah. but like but it, even within the first scenes, it's all over the place because it starts out as like a revenge movie. Oh, right. And then it's a rom-com and then it's a Fruitvale station version of nine 11. Like what did you just do? Like, and that's probably important to mention is that the, the beginning prologue in which not Tyler's character, but Allie's character, uh, her mother is murdered on the (laughs) subway. that. (laughs) That wasn't in the original script. So why like, would you? I don't even so, understand why that's in the movie. It's <laughs> with an uncredited oh Martha Plimpton. Oh, she's great. Is she that's a really she's a good she's good. Oh in that yeah, scene, she's actually yeah. That was the best part of the movie. I know. <laughs> oh my god, what a mess. so much death. What a mess. So much. What do we? Violence. What do we take away from this? Oh my gosh, from this, man. Uh, this movie. Remember me. What, yeah. what, what is it? What is it about it that sort of stands out to you as like? Yeah, we're gonna a do success, this. a failure, or whatever. Right, we're gonna do this, Dan. We're gonna start like giving a score at the end oh, of each yeah, episode scores. to wrap this up between negative 100 and positive 100 of what we think the cultural impact either was, is, or will be of the film. Um, so I know you had a score in mind. Uh, mine's negative 90. <laughs> uh, I really think it does a disservice to... I think it does a disservice to the people who died in 9-11. Is that terrible to say? <laughs> no, I think that's totally <laughs> It kind fair. of feels like it's awful. It's like, yeah. it, you know, World Trade Center is a decent movie. Like, that's not, you know... Uh, I think it sort of meets the requirement yeah. of what you need to do to make a movie about that tragedy. For United 93, I think, is even a better example. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, but this is just disgusting on some level. Uh-huh. Um, and I, you know what? I honestly feel bad for Will Fetters because I shouldn't. But I think he <laughs> felt like this was this super important person. He called the movie Memoirs. He called the script Memoirs. Yeah. This is his life. 
And then he sort of decided to shove his life into a 9-11 tragedy story. Right. Dude, come on, man. No one's going to remember this movie. If they do go back and see it, they're going to be offended by it. Uh, Can you imagine a Zoomer seeing this in like 10 years? (laughs) And be like, wait, this is what 9-11 was about? Yeah, it was it was a, a bunch of attractive people that died. Um, it's a like yappy sort of <laughs> vacuous. Yeah, meeting, meeting his father's lawyers at like 9 a.m. on a Tuesday. Because he bailed him out. Wait, why did he bail him out again? Uh, for this time it was, oh, oh he, attacked time, he vandalized. The- he attacked a school. <laughs> He threatened a child. He, thre- he threatened he a little ch- seven-year-old girl. <laughs> this That's why I'm giving it a negative 90. It's yeah. its one of the most offensive films I think I've ever it's, seen. Yeah, it's its just tremendously awful. Um, I think I have to agree with you. I, I don't yeah. have a, I don't have a, a reason. You're not going to price is right me here with a negative no. 1991? Okay, <laughs> no, negative 90. I like that that we're, we're yeah. in uh, cahoots. Uh, uh, but we might we might uh, ha- have a similar score next week. I don't know. What do we what do we have next week for us, Dan? Oh, uh, we are doing what are the tax collector is what we're doing the new Shia yeah. LaBeouf movie. David um, Ayer. What did David? Why do I know David Ayer? He did all these crazy movies. What did he do? He did yeah. Fury, Suicide Squad, and <laughs> Watch is good. But he also did Bright. Yep. Oh. He's he is. Uh, I don't know. He he has very offensive sensibilities as well. So. Um, it'll be interesting. But he also, yeah, he also did End of Watch, which is a decent movie. I uh, like End of Watch. Yeah. I think that it's pretty good. Um, we'll see. Is this like I don't even know what the the, the details. Is this like direct to DVD? What is going on with this, this movie? This is a it's a VOD movie, but I do think they put it, you know, in a couple theaters. Uh, okay. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it was number one at uh, on Apple TV and Fandango this past weekend. Um, as well as number one in the box office, just like the rental. Oh, great. This will be fun to dive into. Yeah. Um, all right, folks. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Uh, this has been film trice. We'll be back next weekend with the tax collector. Mm -hmm.